Hey guys, this is Brad. Just wanted to take a minute to thank you, the listener, for listening and proving you have a growth mindset. Our mission is to curate information from the top influencers around the world. We provide you with real, actionable steps on how to improve in any and every area of your life. Whether you're an entrepreneur, C-suite executive, or just starting your journey of self-development, professional development is all about growth. And you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. If you enjoy this content, please help us by liking, sharing, and subscribing. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome to the Professional Development Podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 1st. Uh, We have on a very special guest today. Uh, Dr. Ellen Reed is a uh, mental performance coach, director of mental training and enhanced performance at Enhanced Performance, uh, co-author of Relentless Solution Focus, professional dancer, and a mental toughness expert. Dr. Reed, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How's everything going with the, the book release? Great. Yeah? Great. It's been what? came out in January. So it's the feedback has been amazing. It's hit the bestseller list a few times, which yep. has been awesome. So yeah, we could probably, you know, I don't think could have expected it to do better at this point. Yeah. And is life changing a little bit for you? Because I see you're, you're doing more and more interviews now, yes, right? Yes. Yes. Yes, definitely. I'm bu- busier. I think we're... Um, a little bit more, um, my schedule's probably just about as busy as I want it to be, which is a good place to be. So, yeah. Awesome. So, again, we appreciate you coming on. So, uh, just taking a look at this stuff, 15 years of performance coaching. Yes. 11 years uh, of dancing at the professional level. Yeah. So, I guess my first question is, was it your passion for the subject or was it more of your athletic background or something else that really got you into mental training and performance? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I have been doing both my whole life, essentially. You know, growing up, I was a dancer from the age of three. Mm-hmm. And just like any kid, you've got to go to school. Yeah. <laughs> so I obviously did that right. and was dancing at the same time. And I guess I always kind of thought that one day I would just be done dancing and I would then do my real job. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, kind of be a, a real professional in the business world. Um, but that day never came. And I just have always loved it. And I've had some awesome, awesome, awesome opportunities, both in the dance world, but also in getting connected with Jason, who mm-hmm. you guys had on here, who I've been working with for close to 15 years. Yep. So I've just been doing both my whole life and it's what feels normal for me. So I start my day with dancing and ballet class for like the first six hours of the day, um, rehearsals, ballet class, things like that. And then I go into coaching. And so it's just, it's kind of been my normal. Um, I just kind of got on the train and never got off. Yeah, and I, I think that's super awesome. I did the same thing with, with my business. I turned my hobby into my business. So, you know, it's like they say, like, you never really work a day in yes. your life if you love what yes. you're doing. So yes. I, I find that incredibly cool. But how, how do you find a way to monetize that through the course of taking a hobby into a business? With the dancing? Yeah. Well, I pretty much don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do get paid, which is actually pretty amazing for a dancer during COVID too. Our company has yeah. been, so it's the Big Money Dance Company. And we've been, this. we just finished our 10th season. And they got really creative over the last year to keep us employed. Um, but most of the dancers you know, were there from nine in the morning till like two or three in the afternoon, which is almost a full day. Yep, yep. But most of the dancers, well, all of the dancers really have to work other jobs to be able to afford to do it. Um, like I said, we get paid to be there. We get paid for being a dancer, but it's not enough to really support yourself 
let alone if you have a family. So most of the dancers either teach in the evenings or they work in restaurants or I have a totally different career yeah. outside of that. Um, none of us are doing it for the money. Okay. You know, yeah. And, yeah. And, and same with my coaching. I, you know, I've been really lucky that um, I've never really had to worry about the money aspect of it because when I started, I was just getting out of school and didn't have any money anyway, so I didn't care. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? We've all been there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my husband does well and loves his job. So I definitely do get paid very well for what I do, but it's nice because I don't have to be motivated by that because exactly. I just never really have had to be. Um, and I'm re- I, I fully acknowledge that I'm so lucky in that sense, but— yeah. And it's, it's insane to think about because, yeah, you said five-plus hours every single day yeah. of dance class and rehearsals, yeah. which is probably more than people. A lot of people actually work at their full-time yeah. job. Yeah. Uh, and then you move to coaching athletes yes. and business professionals, plus you're a wife, and you're a mom of two. So, like, I guess my question here, like, in the sake of what we know as channel capacity, like, how do you hold it together to manage yeah. to perform at such a high level in all those areas? Well, one of the things that we really p- preach to our clients— um, and ourselves is you, you don't have to do everything well, but you've got to do the most important stuff well. And so I'm really specific with my dancing, with my coaching, with my momming. What is it that's really important for me to do? And what is it important for me to be good at? And that's what I focus on doing. You know, I'm not the Pinterest mom. <laughs> I'm not the um, perfect decorations for every holiday and birthday party and things like that. And I love that. I wish I was that. But I I know what's important for me as a mom and what my priorities are there. And as a dancer, I've this has been my 11th, 10th season we finished, but we had another season before that of kind of getting the company going. So I've, I have a lot of experience to know what's important for me to focus on and to really hone in on. And I don't try to do more than that. Yeah. Do you have a process with how you look at those really important things and and kind of bring those to the surface? Yeah. Well, we actually, there's in the book, and I think Jason talked about this when he was here, we break down the goal setting really specifically, and it's the same for my life. We call them process goals. Process goals are the most important daily activities that you need to be doing on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, that are going to put you in the position to achieve what you want to achieve. And so for me, they're really simple. Right now I focus on, I call it my fitness challenge. So every day I do 200 abs and 100 something else. So maybe it's 100 push-ups or 100 squats or whatever it is. And that kind of gives me that little bit of an extra edge that I need to go into my day dancing. And then as a mom, we make sure that we redo our kids every night before we put them to bed. And it's just that little one-on-one time that would be really easy for us to miss if we just let the rest of our days kind of get away from us. And then with my coaching career, I spend a certain amount of time every day, every week writing. And so I've got really one most important daily activity that I make sure that I get done every day to make sure that I'm putting that most important thing first. Now, there's a little bit of a process for making sure that those things end up being the right things. So for example, if I pick something to be my most important daily activity, but I'm not getting the results, then I modify it. And I think a lot of times people are worried about picking the wrong thing. 
They're worried about picking the wrong direction. So they kind of just stay in a holding pattern of, you know, I know I want to improve this in my life, but I don't want to go the wrong direction. So I'm just going to kind of stay here for a while. Or I know I need to get in shape, but I don't know if I want to do Pilates or boxing or this or that. So they don't sign up for any of it. But pick something. Pick one thing and just work on being consistent with that one thing. And if you don't get the results, then you modify it. And then you move forward from there. But you're going to be in such a better position if you go that way versus staying in a holding pattern. And I I did read the book as well as Matt. And that was something that I did find that it was kind of, you know, it's right in front of you, but then you don't really recognize it until somebody tells you. And it's like, you know, you see... Um, you know, here, here's a solution, but if that solution doesn't get you to your goals, yes. try the next one. And I think yes. that gets overlooked so often. So yes. how, how do you convince people to, you know, okay, we tried something, but we failed. Yeah. How do they get back over that hurdle of, you know, why well, I need to try something else? Yes. Well, that's hard. I mean, it's really hard. And I was just thinking about this on the way here, actually, when I was kind of thinking about the book and the writing process, I really think that we, the book I think is nine chapters. And I think we spend eight chapters trying to convince people to get to chapter nine, (laughs) which is is the doing, which is the training part. So we teach a mental workout and a success log, which is, are the tools that Jason developed that really work to retrain your brain towards developing this relentless solution focus. Because it's one thing to just read about the why behind Mm -hmm. why this is so important, which it, it is really important. It is really important to understand the why, but we need to give the why so that people do the do, (laughs) right? That's the important part. You can't just know, okay, I need to focus on solutions. They've told me why it's good for me and it's important because you're exactly right. That first solution may not work. And then that second solution may not work. And then that third one may not work. And that's where the training comes in. Training your brain to become relentlessly focused on solutions. Whereas when those first two, three, four, five, six, seven solutions don't work, you keep fighting and your brain is wired to be able to keep fighting to say, what's one thing I can do that could make this just a little bit better? Not what's the one thing that's going to solve it. Not what's the thing, what, what's the solution that's going to solve my problem in its entirety. But what's one thing I can do that could make this better? Yeah, awesome. Yeah. I, 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 oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, no, I was going to say, I, I love that. And, as a parent and Brad also, you know, I have four, Brad has two. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, sometimes we, I run into it, especially with my oldest where she wants to give up. And so, how, and you being a parent, yes. how do you, you know, you do it for a living. Yes. You work with some of the highest yes. performers in the world. You've written a book on yes. it, but I'm sure there's some challenges yes. around the parenting aspect. Yes. And so I'm just curious how you how you can push them through that when they want to give up after yeah. solution one and doesn't work. And kids are the hardest Kids are the hardest. I kind of by accident have started working with a lot of kids um, in the, probably in the past just couple years and especially more since the books come out. And I think what it is is that their parents are either going through the coaching themselves or have read the book and think, gosh, I need to get my kids in on this. And so I've been working. I've got my own kids um, who are five and two. So they're still pretty young. But I've been working with a lot of kids um, anywhere from high school, college, even like 10-year-olds. And they're so much harder than adults. Well, A, because it's usually their parents that want them to come, right? (laughs) right? Versus them saying, hey, I'd really like to work on improving myself. But you're right. It's really hard with kids. And with my five-year-old, we're just now starting to see that kind of normal 
problem-centric thought that we talk about a lot in the book, the way that we're normally wired, we're seeing that kind of come to come out in him, right? Because it's normal. It's the way that I would expect him to be developing where he maybe tries to put this really complicated Lego set together. And if he can't get it the first couple times and he gets frustrated and gives up and maybe throws it across the room, right? And now it's like, oh, as a mom, I'm like, this is where it starts. Like even as a little kid, this is where it starts. And so I keep things really simple with my kids. I keep things really simple with my clients, whether I'm working with a professional athlete or a CEO, we keep it simple. And I think that that's, probably the most effective thing about Jason's coaching fundamentals, because Jason developed these fundamentals, is that they are so simple. But even with the kids, I feel like I have to do a better job of simplifying it even more. And so with my son, what we've started doing, I've got two sons, but with my older son, what we've started doing is every night, we just ask him, hey, what's one thing you're proud of yourself for today? And even that took a little bit to kind of get him to understand what that means. Like, what does it mean to be proud of yourself? Because I tell him all the time that I'm proud of him for things. But it was really kind of a foreign question to ask him, what are you proud of yourself for? And so we're starting with that really simple. And then I think the next level for him is going to be, okay, tell me three things you're proud of yourself for from today. Even that, you know, it's hard. Try asking yourself that every day on a daily basis. And if you've read the book, hopefully people out there have started implementing that. But it's so amazing how foreign that is for people. And when I first start coaching clients before they're familiar with these fundamentals, it's one of the first things that I ask them every time we meet is tell me three things that you feel like you did well since we last talked, three things that you're proud of yourself for since we last talked. And in the beginning, it's really hard for them. They'll maybe give me one. They'll be like, I don't know. I haven't really done anything in the past week. We're really hard on ourselves. And it starts really young. And so starting really young with my kids, I'm really trying to teach them, let's start recognizing what you're doing well and recognizing what you're proud of yourself for. That's actually crazy you said that because I, after I read the book, I started doing something with my daughter every night awesome. after I read a book. Awesome. And it's... it's uh, What's something that made you happy today? Love what's it. something that made you sad today? And what's something that you want to do better tomorrow? Love so it. So there's your next book yes. idea. Well, <laughs> yeah, I love there's it. an opportunity. I love there. it. Yes. For well, kids. that's that is the next book that I want to write is something for kids. And I also do you think it's a generational thing now? Like that, you know, maybe a lot of people our age or maybe a little bit younger are becoming parents, but they were also parents that weren't like a lot of people our age, we they would sign up for something and they wouldn't they wouldn't see it through. So yes. do you think that's getting passed over to like these parents who are like, oh, well, you did sign up for soccer, but you don't want to do it. So you don't have to do it, even though they're not keeping their commitment or? Yeah. It, you know, I'll tell you this. I told you I work with a lot of kids and the first person I usually talk to is their parents. Um, so their parents are the ones that reach out to me, obviously. I don't know that I've ever met a parent that has not been hard enough on their kids. Really? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure I can think of an exception to that. Um, And I'm sure I'm getting a certain kind of type of parent that's sending their kids to me. But even even the parents that I come across just in my— in my own life. I don't think I've ever met a parent that I've been like, you really need to be harder on your kid. Really? I think there is nothing more important than you can—that you can do as a parent than to instill— a way for your kids to develop their own self-confidence. Because as kids, we have people telling us how great we are a lot. Mm. 
right? Like even as, as a young athlete, when you're young on a team, your coach is usually giving you some props and usually your parents after the game are telling you how great you did and things like that. But we're not necessarily teaching them how to recognize it in themselves. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden that athlete gets up to high school and the kids are a little bit bigger, they're a little bit better, and maybe there's less people telling them how great they are, but still enough that they don't necessarily have to do it for themselves. And they can still get away with really talking down on themselves. And when the coach comes up to him after the game and says, hey, Timmy, that was a really great catch, he can still get away with saying, well, yeah, but I struck out twice and I really need to, I really screwed up this play. Then all of a sudden they get to college. And now maybe they're not the best one on the team by a long shot anymore. And there's less people above and telling them how great they are. And that perfectionist way that they've been talking to themselves their whole life really starts to take a toll where now they don't have so many people telling them how great they are. And they're used to telling themselves and focusing on their shortcomings and focusing on their mistakes. And every level you get beyond that, it becomes worse and worse and worse. And again, that perfectionist mentality really starts to take a toll at those higher levels of competition. Yeah, and actually, this was something I wanted to talk about. So Matt sent me a picture of the perfectionist mentality, what, a few days ago? Mm-hmm. And it basically describes me to a T. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm very hard on myself. Yeah. Even though I do, I, I've done well in certain areas. If I really want to dissect it, I can give myself a little bit of credit. But um, at the same time, I'm always hard on myself. And so you say the perfectionist mentality and relentless solution focus, overlooking successes and focusing on shortcomings. Yes. And so. Um, it talks about the high performers, like you had mentioned, yeah. where yeah, they hit a home run, but yeah. they missed a ground ball or something. And when perfectionists do something well, they simply expect that of themselves and refuse to take the credit. Right. right? So, um, I guess my I was trying to figure out is that a good thing or a bad thing, right? Because yeah. um, I'll go in and so I play amateur golf, but also with business or with family, whatever. Um, I I tend to expect myself to perform at a certain level. And when I don't, I get hard on myself. And so that's where that perfectionist mentality comes out in me. And so I was trying to figure out like, do you define that as a good thing, a bad thing? Can you use it to motivate yourself or will it erode confidence if you're always kind of in that rhythm? I think yes, 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 and yes. Okay. (laughs) It's a good thing to a point. There are aspects of that perfectionist mentality that are beneficial because you push yourself right? And you expect a lot out of yourself. And even as kids, it makes them push themselves because they still have those people telling them how great they are. And so they still are able to preserve that self-confidence a little bit. But again, most of the people, all of the people that I work with have elements of this perfectionist mentality, which is a big contributor, contributor to their success. But it's also a big thing that holds them back from achieving their potential. And I know Jason talked about this and I'm gonna talk about it because it's so important. And I'll, I, we talk about it a lot in our book. I talk about it all the time with my clients. Self-confidence is the number one variable for all human performance. There's nothing you can do that's gonna impact the way you're gonna perform as a dad, as a golfer, as a business person, more than to foster and work on developing your self-confidence. And that perfectionist mentality totally derails self-confidence. So there are good aspects of it in that it pushes you. 
So what we want to do is we want to maintain the good and we want to adapt the bad. Now, there's a theory in psychology that I think is important to understand in thinking about why this is so important. And that's, it's called expectancy theory. Expectancy theory states that that which you focus on expands. So if you're focusing on your shortcomings, you're going to have more shortcomings. And again, that filter is because of that filter through self-confidence. But if you're focusing on what you're doing well, you're going to do more things well. And again, it's because of self-confidence. Because when your self-confidence is down, because you're thinking about all the missed shots you had or all the things that you don't feel like you do well as a dad, that affects your self-confidence and that affects the way that you're going to perform. But if you're recognizing the things that you are doing well, instead of being really quick to blow them off and saying, well, yeah, but my putting was good, but my putting's always good. You know, I really need to work on my chipping or whatever it is. Then that's not letting that expectancy theory work for you. It's allowing it to work against you, which again is the way that most normal people do it. But we want it to work for you. And it's so simple. If you can just get in the habit of recognizing two or three things that you're doing well every day and thinking about what's one thing I want to improve the next day, you're going to like the results so much better. So you can maintain that drive for improvement. And I think that's where people kind of get hung up on, well, yeah, but you can't just tell people how great they are all the time, which I 100% agree with. I think it's a it's an easy um, or a understandable, I should say, kind of question about this program is, well, is it just like putting on rose-colored glasses and not really seeing your problems for what they are? And it's not. RSF, Relentless Solution Focus, is not about putting on rose-colored glasses. It's about really being able to look at your problems and recognize your problems and know what to do with them. Say, what's one thing I want to improve tomorrow? And that's, I know I'm talking a lot about this. I'm sorry. Um, Let me just say one more thing about it that that's where the perfectionist mentality also really cuts people off at the knees because a lot of people don't take that next step to say, well, I'm really sucking at this, but what's one thing I can do to improve it? We get so hung up on the I'm really sucking at this part that we don't even a lot of times take that next step to move past it. And so the tools in this book, The Relentless Solution Focus, teaches you to be able to recognize what you're doing well, but also keep your focus on improvement and to do so in a way that's effective, that's not going to prevent you from taking that first step before you even start. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. And I never really looked at it from like a a kid's perspective, right? But the more you all are talking about it, the more it makes sense that it's like, we almost have it ingrained in our society to build kids to understand how to, uh, I guess, only like they almost need this outside validation, right? Yeah, yeah. Like there's nobody teaching kids on how to recognize what they're doing well because it's coming from parents, it's coming from teachers, it's coming from coaches, it's coming from peers. Like, hey, yeah. you did well on this. And it's like, thanks, pat on the back. But right. there's nobody actively teaching, like sitting people down unless it's parents yes. and saying, okay, what did we do great today? Yes. And then essentially what can we improve on? Yes. And uh, listen to the Ben Newman yeah. Right, obviously, we we know Ben and uh, listen to that podcast that you did with him. You talked about redefining how we look at solutions, right? And most people, and I think a majority of people, you're right, um, look at solutions as something that's just a total resolution mm-hmm. to a problem. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit more for our listeners on why that is and then what the correct way to look at finding a solution is? Sure. So, 
we call it the, well, we don't call it it. It it is called the entirety perspective, where when you look at a problem, you get so consumed with the entirety of the situation. When you see, you know, when you've got to climb a mountain, the instinct is to look at the top. Look up, not that I've ever climbed a mountain, (laughs) but that instinct is to look all the way up to the top and think, okay, this is all, this is what I've got to do. Well, if you're, if I'm at the foot of the mountain and I'm looking up at the top, I'm probably never going to take that first step. Because I'm going to get so consumed with thinking about how much work and how many potential failures I could come across in that entire journey up the mountain that I'm not even going to take the first step. And so what happens is that people give up before they even try. And that's called learned helplessness. It's so common. It's so normal. I... um so my background is in experimental psychology. That's what my doctorate is in. And I, in school, learned about all these theories and all of these like human behavioral um, things that we do. And it's like, oh yeah, I see that in people. I see that. Oh yeah, I do that. It, it's really eye-opening to kind of learn the psychology behind it. But what I think Jason and what I've learned from him is that he takes these psychological principles and he breaks them down into what is the simplest thing that you need to implement to be able to get your peak performance and happiness out of life. And I think the happiness is the important part. People, I I think the the easy thing is to learn how to make more money or learn how to improve your business. But what I think people are kind of pleasantly surprised about when they adopt this relentless solution focus is that it allows you to gain more happiness and enjoyment out of life. And so Jason, he is somehow able to really simplify it. Into, okay, what is the thing that's going to allow you to take this entirety perspective, this learned helplessness, learned helplessness. That's this psychological principle that has been studied and studied and studied. We know it's a thing, but what do we do about it? And he developed this relentless solution focused tool. And I'm not sure if he talked about it when he was on here, but um, if he did, it's definitely worth repeating. The relentless solution focused tool comes in the form of a question. And the question is, what's one thing I can do that could make this better? That's it. What's one thing I can do that could make this better? And what that does is it replaces that looking all the way up to the top of the mountain perspective and asks you to think about that very next step, but not in like a, what am I going to do to get up there kind of way, but just a, what's one thing I can do that could help me get from here to here? And then you get from here to here and you say, okay, well, what's one thing I can do that could make this better? And then you get from here to here. And then, okay, that didn't work. What's one thing I can do that could make this better? It literally always works. (laughs) Yep. It always works. And one thing that I think is also pretty important to point out because everybody's probably thinking it is what do you do when you just don't know? Mm -hmm. What do you do when somebody says, well, there's nothing I can do to get from here to here. I just don't know. If you knew, you wouldn't be asking the question to begin with. So you've got to give yourself the rule that you can't say, I don't know. You've got to come up with one thing that you could do that could help you get from here to here or could make this better. And if it works, awesome. If it doesn't work, at least you've prevented yourself from spiraling into that problem-centric thought tornado. Remember that expectancy theory, that which you focus on expands. So the more you're focused on, there's nothing I can do, 
well, there, then there's really nothing you can do. But as soon as you open your mind up to the possibility of solutions, that expectancy theory is working in a whole new way for you. And then chemically, I don't know if Jason talked about this either, but this is so important. I think it's so interesting and compelling too, that literally the chemicals in your brain are different when you're thinking about solutions versus when you're thinking about problems. When you're thinking about problems, you've got all sorts of nasty neurotransmitters going through your body. That cortisol is a nasty thing that does a lot to people's health, happiness, and success. But as soon as you start thinking about what's the one like next tiny inch of improvement I can make, what's one thing I can do that could make this better, your body starts to release a whole other set of neurotransmitters that really promotes creativity, intelligence, happiness, but really is amazing. And it's so simple. Yeah, that's awesome. Did you have something? I do have something because I'm curious because there's people that we know that are, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they always have to point out the negative things or the downfalls or why you shouldn't do that. Well, how do you approach a situation with somebody like that to get them on the path? Because obviously they're in that tornado nonstop. How How do you break them to to get them to think completely differently than they ever have. Yeah, and that's really hard. That's really hard. And especially when you start getting into this stuff and you start experiencing the results, a lot of times people want to like shout it from the rooftops and they're like, no, just ask yourself, what's one thing you can do that could make this better? You know, you really start to experience the results and you want to give it to everybody. But the worst thing you can do is to try to give someone else a solution. Okay. So the best thing you can do is to really ask them the question, hey, what's what's one thing we could do that could make this better? And then they're going to say, I don't know. <laughs> and then you say, well, let's play a game. And the only rule of the game is you're not allowed to say, I don't know, or anything that represents, I don't know. Usually that's enough. And then they'll kind of giggle and then they'll think about, okay, I want to say, I don't know, but I'm not allowed to say that. And then just ask them the question again. What's one thing we can do that could make this better? And then... Or maybe you're a little softer with it and you say, okay, what's one thing I can do that could help make this a little bit better? What's one thing we could do together? So you maybe don't want to throw it at him and say, what's one thing you can do that can make this better? Because that can feel for someone that's really stuck in that PCT tornado, that can feel a little bit overwhelming. But you just keep asking. I find that, and I experience this a lot, I find that if I ask that question two or three times, you're going to get an answer. Yeah. And I don't think people realize it's really, the book's really opened up my eyes into how much PCT problem-centric thinking closes your brain off. Yeah. Like just completely shuts it down. And kind of a little bit of a personal story that I've had uh, from reading the book as I'm going through day to day. And Dan and I work uh, together. So uh, I'm a recruiter. Uh So one of my projects is to hire 10 sales, sales reps for a company uh, here in St. Louis. And as I was going through it, I was really close to hitting my goal. Four of the offers extended were from uh, a, a technically, not even really, but kind of a competitor, and found out that the competitor was going to go after these people's non-compete, uh, which was kind of a shitbag thing to yeah. do because they're not even in the same industry and you can't really take away someone's right to work. Neither here nor there. But finding this out, I was like, well, that's 40% of where my quota should be. Right. Like, right. what am I going to do? And like, I bitched a little bit about it to Dan and he heard it, but I'm like sitting there, I'm reading the book as I'm going through this and I'm like, okay, well, what can I do? And I'm like, I got a hold of the non-compete, which was going to go to the legal team. I'm like sitting there, I'm like thinking about, well, let me read the non-compete. And I'm like, well, what the fuck is yeah. reading a non-compete going to do? I'm not a lawyer, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. not going to help me in any way, shape or form. I'm like, 
like in group text, I'm like, I could, you know, I want to call someone and like tell them the story because it's hilarious and I want to bitch. I'm like, well, that's not going to do anything. I'm like, well, what is one thing right now I could do right now to potentially make this better? And it's like, well, fucking recruit more people. Yeah. Like, like yeah. go out there, like sit here, block off my phone, yes. close out my email, don't let any of this get in my way and just spend an hour awesome. trying to find these candidates, right? And so now we've got the pipeline filled up. Not even going to go through with the non-competes. So it was a problem that didn't even— like, Awesome. It's not going to hold any ground. But now we're in a position where we could have, like, we could exceed this quota by 30%, 40% or whatever awesome. it is. Um, so that was just kind of a little bit of a story that I had on the on the impact and how my normal brain yes. would have gone to just, like, okay, look at every inch of this problem until it's yeah. just consuming yes. me. And do you know how hard that is for people to do what you did? And when you said recruit more people, yeah, it's so obvious, yeah. right? It's so simple, of course, recruit more people. But so many people would not have gotten there because mm -hmm. that PCT tornado is so strong. Yeah. I love that example. That is such a perfect example of this. And I even love that that was a great um, kind of a representation of what we call the mental chalkboard, where if you open up your brain— You've got a problem side and you've got a solution side. And in the middle, the bridge to get from that problem side to the solution side is that RSF tool, that RSF question. What's one thing I can do that could make this better? Yep. So it start, sounded like you started with, okay, the problem is this non-compete issue, all my sales, this and that. So what's one thing I can do that could make this better? You thought, okay, I'm going to read the non-compete. Well, you cross that off the list pretty quick. So when you went from, I'm going to read the non-compete, you, you got over to that solution side of the mental chalkboard pretty fast. That's pretty good. So what you've stopped is that PCT tornado sucking you further and further in. Now, you may not have stayed over on the solution side very long because you quickly crossed it off. You landed back on the problem side. But that's okay because then you just ask the question again. What's one thing I can do that could make this better? I'm going to call and bitch my friend about it. Yeah. And maybe that made you feel better for two seconds before you realized that's not going to work. You crossed it off. You went back again. That's okay. You just ask yourself the question again. What's one thing I can do that could make this better? Mm -hmm. Well, I can recruit people. And I'd say you even got to a solution that sticks pretty quickly. Oh, there was a lot more. Okay. Ins and outs, <laughs> okay. For sure. I, I gave the cliff notes of the story. Okay. I was yeah. going to say, I'm pretty impressed, but that's such a great example. You cross it off on the solution side, then you go back to the problem side, and then you just ask the question again. Now, the, the name of the game, the key is to try to get from the problem side to the solution side within 60 seconds. Because 60 seconds is long enough to recognize that you're focused on a problem, but not long enough for that PCT to really take hold and start releasing cortisol into your bloodstream and really make it hard to get out of that problem side. So that's a great example, and I love that. And your solution is so obvious and so simple, but when you're focused on a problem, you turn into an idiot, yeah. <laughs> right? Tunnel vision. Yes, yep. yes. And so that's where even just starting to open your mind up to what could I do that could make this better starts to— let that idiocy kind of move away so you can come up with a solution that would stick and now you're in such a great position because of it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I like where it's what can I do, right? Because that's what you have control over. Yes. In Matt's case, like he didn't have control over all the other shit that was going on outside of the fact that if he puts his head down and he recruits, it solves the problem. Yeah. No matter what happens yes. with things that I can't control. So I love that. And in fact, one of the exercises that 
um, I'll have my clients do a lot of time is just instead of, so we have the mental chalkboard, which again is on the one side you've got problems, on the other side you've got solutions. But another way to look at that is on one side you've got the things you can't control, and on the other side, what can you control? And so literally just make a little T-chart and write, can't control on the left and can control on the right. And anytime you catch yourself feeling stressed, worried, anxious, mad, whatever it is, guilty, I guarantee it's because you're focused on something that you cannot control. Yeah, and going in, even back to Ben Newman, which I know, you know, Jason Zell, yeah. you know, uh, attack the process, right? Yes. And so that really helped me for a long time. I mean, for a long time, I would let the emotions control, you know, what can I do in this situation, you know? And it's, so now I always ask myself, what can I control? Um, awesome. And if I can't control it, then I shouldn't be upset about it. I shouldn't let my emotions get in, in the way there, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. Well, um, and sometimes that's I like enough. That. I love that. And sometimes that's enough to say, well, I can't do anything about it, so I'm not going to worry about it. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes it doesn't help. And then you say, okay, well, what's something I can do that that could make this better? I love this story that I heard Jason talk about this years and years ago. Um, his grandmother he was so close to his grandmother. Like they were best friends. His grandmother took him to Vegas on his 21st birthday and they like stayed up partying all night long. I never met her, but she was just hearing Jason talk about her. She was an awesome, awesome woman. And when she passed away, Jason was obviously devastated and was having a really, really hard time with it. And one day he was driving in his car and he had his windows rolled down and he was just tears streaming down his face th thinking about his grandmother being gone. And he RSF'd it. And he said, what's one thing I can do that could make this just a little bit better right now? Now, obviously you can't bring his grandmother back, right? So there are problems in life that you can't really do anything about. You can't bring his grandmother back. But what he decided in that moment is, I'm gonna start throwing a party every New Year's Day and it's going to be called the Genevieve Party. His, his grandmother's name was, name was Genevieve. And she loved New Year's Day. And she loved um, the, the football and the betting and all the fun stuff that goes on on New Year's Day. And so he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a party in her honor every New Year's Day. And we're going to celebrate her life. And did it bring her back? No, but it absolutely made him feel better in that moment and gave him something positive, something that he could control in that situation to make it just a little bit better. Yeah, and I really like that because it's almost a mind, mindset like switch, right? Yeah. Where, so I was actually at church and, and they said this and ever since, and I'm, I'm fortunate where I haven't lost anybody really close yeah. to me you know, yet in my life. But it was instead of being upset over... Um, losing them, be thankful for the time that you were yeah. able to spend with them. And that was like a huge just like switch yeah. where it's like, okay, well, maybe I get, at least I got the amount of time I, I was able to get with them. I could have had none of that time. So I'm very fortunate for that. And that was just, yes. a, you know, those little mindset yes. flips that you can Absolutely. do Absolutely. And we have control over that. I, um, my, my grandmother just passed away about a year ago, but she... Um, suffered from Alzheimer's, which is, I don't know if you guys have anybody in your family or close to you dealing with that, but it's just horrible. And so it was years and years and years. She got it pretty early. And 
Obviously, there wasn't anything I could do about that. And I live in St. Louis, and she lives in Lexington, Kentucky, so I didn't even get to see her that much. But our dance company had an outreach program where we would go into senior living facilities and do put on little performances for the people living there. And a lot of times it would be like a memory care unit um, where older adults with dementia or Alzheimer's would be living Um And I would always make a point to, after the performances, just go up and talk to them. And something about that just made me feel a little bit better (laughs) about my grandmother and just seeing these people kind of light up after our shows and hearing them kind of talk about, gosh, that that reminded me of my granddaughter's dance recitals and this and that. And, and their caregivers would often tell us when we would um, be done with our performances before we would leave, they would be like, gosh, I haven't seen that person say a word in the past week, or I've not seen them smile in the past few days. And something about me feeling like I could have a small impact in somebody's life in that way made a little bit of a difference in my my grandmother in my mind. And you're right, It's I had control over that. I don't have control over whether my grandmother suffers from dementia, but it absolutely is a mindset which affects the chemicals in our body and affects the way we go about the rest of our day and experience the rest of our lives. And that's where the happiness piece of this comes in. And that's where I feel like I love my job not because people can make a lot more money or have a lot more career success when they go through our coaching programs, which you know absolutely is a big part of it. And that's usually what brings them to us. But just experiencing the different levels in like their stress levels and anxiety and depression and happiness, that's where I really feel like I get to do something special. Yeah. Yeah. Love Ab- that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we all hear controlling the controllables uh, yeah. and we know that, but it, it all starts with bringing awareness, yeah. like understanding when we're in that mindset yes. and understanding what's controllable and what's not. Uh, one of the questions I want to ask was you wrote the preface mm-hmm. uh, for the book, Relentless Solution Focus. And one of the first things that stood out in the book was your vulnerability in that when you talk about your propensity to be yeah. anxious, it's hard like, like the podcast is our, our main job, but it's our job, right? Yeah. So our job is to study influencers and people that are at a high level success. And I think there's this, um, in the world of like authors, speakers, coaches, quote unquote influencers, um, it's almost like taboo to like put yourself in a light that isn't this yeah. public face that's just perfect, right? Uh, and so I guess my question is like, why did you decide to allow yourself to be vulnerable uh, in the book and showcase some of your own issues? And why do you think that is with people that like so many successful people don't ever want to show yeah. the bad side of things for them? Yeah. Well, I think I said this to Ben Newman, actually, um, that that was surprising to me as one of the things that people will comment on most often when they talk to me about kind of the impact the book has had on them is like, Ellen, you know, that preface I was reading, I talk about kind of how I used to wake up every morning with my heart pounding out of my chest. Like that was just my norm. That was just my normal level of anxiety that I didn't even think was strange because I just felt like that was normal. And, you know, thoughts would swirl through my mind every morning of like, okay, 
what did I do yesterday? Do I have anything going on today? Is my health okay? Did, is anything, did I say anything yesterday that I regret? Is my parent, are my parents okay? Or I, I, my, do I need to call my sister? Like just, and it, I would, those, those thoughts would go through my mind probably within like three seconds. Like it doesn't yeah. take a long time for all of these like panic stricken thoughts to go through our mind. And that was just my normal. I had kind of like a Rolodex of potential problems that I would flip through to think, okay, whew, none of this is an issue today. Okay, check. And then it would start all over the next day. And I was just really, really lucky that I came across Jason when I did because I also, you know, I, I, I spoke a lot about my vulnerability there, or wrote a lot about it, but I also, you know, I think on paper I was great. Like I was a really good student. I was a dancer and I was popular. And um, so really, you know, you could look at me and think, oh, I'm, I'm fine. And I could probably have gone my whole life like that and still kind of made it out okay on paper. But I didn't really realize that you don't have to live like that until I didn't live like that anymore. And I met Jason and obviously I started working for him kind of actually before I started doing his fundamentals for myself um, and changed my life. And I think, and it's funny because when we were, we were interviewing publicists and we sent them a copy of like what we had finished of the book at that point. And I think we only had like the preface and maybe like the first two chapters done at that point. And she, um, in this phone call, we were kind of like interviewing and talking about like, what's the plan? Because we've Jason's really never done any publicity on his books before. Um, it's all, and they've been very successful. It's just been all word of mouth. And um, so this is kind of new territory for both of us. And she was like, you know, Ellen, I just don't know about that preface. You know, I just, you're supposed to be the expert here. And I just kind of feel like maybe you don't want to portray yourself in that light. And I, I'm still, you know, so so new in this process that I'm like, oh, okay, sure, whatever you say, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so we hung up with her, and Jason called me back right away. He's like, Ellen, we have got to leave that in there. He was like, you, you show your vulnerability, and he said, there's so much strength in vulnerability. And I'm so glad that we did because she had me questioning it for a minute. And, and, and that's a good point. You know, I'm supposed to be the expert here and kind of showing my cards like that. Like this is something that I struggle with. Um, definitely is vulnerable. But I also think that nobody wants to learn from someone that doesn't have to work through anything themselves. And I, I also feel like that that is one of the things that makes me great as a coach because mental toughness is not, easy for me. It's not a normal thing that I was just born with high levels of mental toughness. I've had to work at it. Just like 99% of the rest of the world has had to work at it. And I think, you know, there's some examples out there. We see like the stories on um, documentaries and things like that of these amazing people who've achieved these amazing things that you think, God, they're just like aliens, right? But the rest of the world isn't like that. And I'm not like that. And I had to work at it. And I think that that's one of the things that gives me more legitimacy than anything that I, you know, I've, I've worked at this myself and I continue to work at it. I'm not great at it all the time. I fall off the wagon too. And, and that's also, I think, important for people to understand that maybe you're in a place in your life right now where you feel like you're not performing at your potential, whether it be your mental state, whether it be as a parent and your job. And sometimes I feel like people think that 
they shouldn't seek help when they're not already doing well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it kind of feels like, oh, you get a performance coach when you're crushing it at your job, right? That's what the successful people do. But my gosh, like, how do you get that way? It's the kind of the the worst position you feel like you're in, the more dramatic results you're going to get. And so I think that that's something that I've learned just kind of from the response to it is something that I think is so important. And I try to open up more about my vulnerability now and about, you know, just that it's a it's a struggle for me and I have to stay consistent on the training. I have to do my mental workout consistently. I have to do my success logs consistently. It's not like I already did it. I check it off my list and now I'm just mentally tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because remember, we're all wired to not be this way. It's normal for us to have this problem-centric thought. And so we have to do the consistent training. But let me say this too, that the consistent training doesn't take a lot of time. It takes like two minutes a day. It's really not a big deal. It's not a big commitment. It just takes consistency. You absolutely can do it. Yep. No, that's awesome. And so, um, did you guys have anything else before we got into the OnlyFans inquiry? Because we want to be respectful of your time, obviously. Um, And before that, uh, before I forget, I do want to say, We've said it before, we've said it again. Relentless Solution Focus is the book by Dr. Ellen Reed and Dr. Jason Selk. Uh, Majority of the podcast is already reading or in the process of reading it. If you haven't gone out and gotten it yet, go get it, read it. It's an amazing book. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question that we have for this week is actually pretty straightforward, and it's more of a background, and it is, what was your favorite part of writing a book with Dr. Jason Selk? Oh, um, can I tell you my least favorite part? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's better. And this is, and he'll tell you the same thing. So Jason, which again, he's, he is like the master of simplicity. So he wants nothing to do with like technology or like any sort of, um, any sort of like, so, you know, anything we could use to like make the collaboration process a little bit easier. <laughs> so we probably spent a little bit more time than we needed to like going back and forth on like edits. So like we would kind of like, I would work on a chapter, he would work on a chapter and then we would email him back to each other. And it was really a very um, probably inefficient process where we probably lost a lot of ed- edits where I'm like, hey, Jason, what if we just clicked this collaborate button right here? <laughs> <laughs> And did it that way. But I also think that that kind of forced us to really kind of go slower and really think about the edits that we were making and think about like, what do we want to delete? And that, this is leading me into my, probably my favorite thing about working with Jason on this is that that was probably one of the things that he was most adamant on is like, okay, this time when we're going through it, let's think about what we can delete. I'm like, well, Jason, we need to submit this like 60,000 word book to the publisher. You know, like we need words. We need, and he's like, Ellen, don't worry about that. What can we delete? And that's the way that I think he's approached and the way I try to approach these programs and our coaching. It's like, what do we really need people to get out of this? And let's cut out the rest of the crap because channel capacity, people only have so much capacity to take things in and to be able to implement things. So if we can get it down to what is the most important thing that we need people to get out of this chapter, that's what we want to focus on. And so I think what was kind of frustrating about the experience with it, like kind of forcing us to have to go a little bit slower in the collaboration process really led to a lot of its... um, success, I think, and that it made us really stop and go slow and take note of like, what's really important here? Yeah, I I love that because you can almost apply that to life too. What can I delete out of life to 
make my life is yes. the most efficient and simplest. Yeah, and like know. just do it to one of your closets in your house and it'll feel so good. Do you think right? everything? Like, yes. Uh, what's your favorite? Um, <laughs> Marie Kondo? Or yes. What was her name? Well, I've gotten really, <laughs> yes, Marie Kondo. And I've also gotten really into the home edit, which the rest of the world has too. It's a show on Netflix. Really? And, check it and, out. It's, and I love it because it is such a perfect representation of what we do with our clients is like, take everything out, like, let's, you're doing way too much. You've got way too much in that closet. Pull everything out and let's put back what's really important and then really focus on front and center what's important. Yeah, I love that. Because sometimes, honestly, I feel like, you know, with kids' toys all the way to my stuff and I'm like a big kid, so I got a lot of random stuff too. So sometimes it's it's overwhelming to look around like, what am I going to do with all this stuff? You know, and so I've been trying my best to to not buy things or, you yes. know, just to keep things very yes. simple. I just need my couch, my TV. Yes, like, exactly, more, right? exactly. So, <laughs> yep. Uh, well, this has been awesome. We really appreciate you. you coming this in studio. Um, yeah, I was going to say thanks and, uh, and hopefully we can have you back on again. Absolutely. You guys can come to my house next time. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. Sounds yeah. good. Dr. I'll show Reed. you all my organized closets because I've been working hard on them over COVID. <laughs> That's awesome. Dr. Reed, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you guys. Thanks again.